2 Kings chapter 2, if you would turn there uh, this morning, 2 Kings chapter 2. Let me, um, instead of reading the first eight verses, we begin with verse 9. Let me just tell you this story really quickly. Most of you are, many of you may be familiar with this story. One of the great Bible stories of the Old Testament. I love First and Second Kings stories for Sunday school. They're always the best, and they make the best flannel graphs. How many remember flannel graphs when we were kids in Sunday school? But, but Elijah and Elisha are just the best. The, the, the stories are incredible. But this is the passage of Scripture where Elijah's ministry has come to an end. And um, Elisha, who is his assistant, if you will, um, is going to take over. And Elijah has been told that his day is coming. He is going to be taken away. He's not going to be taken away through a funeral or through the earth and a grave, but a chariot and a whirlwind, chariot of fire and a whirlwind is going to take him up into the presence of God, unlike anyone else has ever gone. And uh, God has told him that's going to happen. He's also told a company of prophets that that is going to happen. And he's also told Elisha that that is what can be expected and so the company of prophets kind of goes on about their business. But Elisha says to Elijah, I want to stay with you. I want to be there in that moment when you are carried away. And three different times, Elijah will say to Elisha, I'm going to go on. You stay here, but I'm going to go on ahead. But Elisha, all three times, will say, no, I'm staying with you. I'm going to be with you when you are taken away. Verse number nine, so it was when they crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? And Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So Elijah said to him, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, watch this, if you see me, when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you don't see me, it shall not be so. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elisha went up by whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha, notice, he saw it. He did see it. And he cried out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. So he saw him no more and he took hold of his own clothes and he tore them in two pieces. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and he went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan and he took the mantle of Elijah and he struck the water and he said, where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, it was divided this way and that. And Elisha crossed over. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. And I thank you, God, that you are a chain breaker and you are a pain taker and you are the one that delivers us, sets us free, bears our burdens and intercedes for us. I pray, God, in these next few minutes that you would enlarge our vision, expand our borders and ramp up our expectation for what you desire to do in and through us, in our community, and in the communities that surround us. We are believing you for great things. I ask God for your anointing. Help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which is from you in these moments that we share together, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here's what I want you to think with me, and I, I'm going to preach quickly this morning. Um, we have several that will be baptized at the end of this service, and I'd ask that you stay. Uh, if He's pumped about being baptized, isn't he? All right. All right. 
And Samuel, notice how two, the two of you sit so closely together. These are our guys that are fired up. But we're gonna, I want you to stay for that. But I want to preach quickly this message. It's really very simple. Um, but, but Elijah was about ready to go. He said to Elisha, um, I want you to just, you go on without me. But Elisha said, no, I want to stay. And so Elijah said, what is it that you want? And here's what he asked for, a double portion of God's anointing on his life. He wanted twice as much, if you will, as what Elijah had. Now really, according to Deuteronomy, what he was asking for, Deuteronomy 21 says to ask for the double portion is to ask for the elder son's inheritance. He wanted everything that was coming to him plus. But literally, it's interesting, if you read the story and the narrative of Elijah, he did seven miracles. Elisha did, you know how many Elisha did? 14, twice as many miracles as Elijah did. So he did indeed receive the double portion of God's spirit that was upon Elijah. But his ability to receive that blessing was completely dependent upon whether or not he had his eyes focused on Elijah when Elijah was taken up. Elijah said, what you've asked is a hard thing. But if you see me when I'm taken up, then you will receive it. If not, you will not receive it. Now, there would have been many things that would have distracted Elisha along the way. He, the, the, the journey could have been hard and tiring. He could have said, can we slow down? Can we get something to eat? Can we spend the night here instead of keeping on moving? But Elijah kept trotting forward, and Elisha, watched me, was so determined to have that double portion that he said, I'm going to stay with you. My eyes are going to be fixed on you so that when you're taken away, I can see you so I can experience the double portion of God's Spirit. Proverbs 4.25, look at what it says. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. That was what Elisha did. He let his eyes be gazed, fixed on Elijah. Elisha did that for Elijah so that he could experience the double portion of God's Spirit. What is focus? Focus is the ability to define a single goal and concentrate on achieving that goal. It is the ability to focus or define a goal and concentrate on achieving it. Researchers have done some phenomenal research. It's a really interesting thing. I just read about this a few weeks ago, and they have identified some of the common mental processes that they have found exist in some of the really elite athletes. Athletes that seem to, in that moment of pressure, rise to the top and pull off amazing feats. One of the most intriguing aspects that they have found is a phenomenon called the quiet eye. It is a kind of enhanced visual perception that allows the athlete to eliminate any distraction as they plan their next move. Interestingly, the quiet eye appears to be particularly important in those moments of stress, preventing the athlete from choking at moments of high pressure. I grew up, I love sports still to this day, I grew up really a baseball fan, that's what I loved the most and that's what I played.
But I remember guys like Kurt Gibson stepping up to the plate in a World Series game with a bum leg and hitting a home run that was incredible. I remember Reggie Jackson stepping up, wasn't my favorite player, but he would step up to the plate and, and hit a home run in, in the most interesting, intriguing, pressure-packed moments. I remember one of the things I, I have a very... Um, vivid memory of. We used to go to Cincinnati Reds games. That was a big deal for us, and Dad would take us back in the old, not Crosley, but Riverfront Stadium. Some of you remember Crosley. I only remember Riverfront. I know that's old, too, but we would go to Riverfront. I remember one Friday night, we went to a, a twinight doubleheader. They were playing the Dodgers, and they were down three runs in the bottom of the ninth inning, and Bench was up. Johnny Bench, all right? How many love Johnny Bench? Come on, all right? And, and my uniform number was number five, too, by the way. And, and I love Johnny Bench, but he stepped up the plate, bases loaded, two outs, bottom of the ninth, and they're down three runs, and the dude hits a grand slam. And, and I remember that was the first game, and I remember people talking in the, in the restrooms in between, this guy is going to become a, you know, he's, he's going to become an all-star, and obviously he did. But, but those kinds of players that have that ability in that moment with all the pressure on, they wanted the bat in their hands. They wanted to be the guy that stepped up to the plate. What's really interesting is they've taken this research, and Dr. Joan Vickers actually did this research with golfers. And she hooked a group of professional golfers up to a device that monitored their eye movement and found that the, on the putting green, the exceptional putters were the ones that, that were able to maintain visual contact before, during, and after the putt. They had this, this phenomenon called quiet eye. I don't feel bad about being a lousy putter anymore because I apparently don't have that phenomenon. But, but these really good putters did. They had this ability to eliminate all distractions and keep a focused gaze on the ball. We all remember when we were teaching our kids how to play baseball, we would say, and we've screamed it from behind backstops, keep your eye on the ball, all right? And some kids do it, and some kids pull their heads, and they have no idea where the ball is. But those, those athletes with that quiet eye they have found have that ability to really lock in, especially under pressure. Glad tidings, look at me for just a moment. We have a vision. I don't preach, if you're a guest, I don't preach on our vision every week. I do it about once a year. I really felt compelled today was the day. But we have a vision that we believe God has given to us. But to achieve it, we have to keep our eyes fixed, our gaze upon that vision. I'm going to share with you five very simple things. This will be um, on a scale of 1 to 10 with sermon depth and 10 being the deepest, this is about a negative 5, okay? This is, this is not deep. This is simple, but it is truth. Number one is identification. We have to identify what our vision is so we know what we are going after. You see, Elisha knew that he wanted a double portion of Elijah's anointing. That's what he wanted, that's what he longed for, and that's what he was going after. There was never anything else that Elisha desired. And God has given us a vision. We've identified it, we know it clearly, and this is what we believe God wants us to go after. 
I think most of you know our mission statement. It is to develop biblically sound believers who reflect Christ's character. If you don't know it, you should know it. We say it all the time. This is what, whether it's in this pulpit, whether it's in the student ministry center with Pastor Isaac, whether it's in our children's ministries, whether it's in Dunkirk or Hartford City, what we are committed to is developing biblically sound believers. They know the word of God and then reflect the character of Christ. But our vision has even a little bit more of a specific nuance to it. Our vision is to develop a network of life-giving churches in eight East Central Indiana counties in the next 10 years. In this new decade, we're getting ready to start one in January. It's a brand new decade, but our vision is to develop life-giving churches in these eight counties in this next decade. I remember vividly the evening that I shared this with the board. It had been kind of stirring around in my heart for more than a year or so. And I had written some things down and then um, I would be about to the point that I wanted to share it and I felt like it wasn't quite the time. But about three years ago, I remember the night that I shared this with the board and I drew it up on the whiteboard. And uh, I was a little nervous in doing that. When I was a kid, my mom had a rummage sale. I've told this story one time before. But every time my mom would have a rummage sale, I would set up a, a lemonade stand at the end of the driveway. Anybody else ever done that before? Please don't make me feel like a complete idiot, all right? Somebody else has done that, all right? And I would charge five cents for the lemonade, and, um, and I was determined, you know, five, six years old, by the end of the day, I was going to have $100,000. I was just sure of it. I have no idea somebody can do the math later how many lemons you'd have to squeeze to come up with that much lemonade. But I, I worked from sun up to sun down. I thought it was a reasonable expectation. But um, as I got older, I realized what a dumb lemonade stand dream that was, you know? And, and so as I've gotten older, um, because I have some of my own insecurities, when I feel like God has said, this is what I want you to do, sometimes it's a little hard to share that. You think, they're going to think that's a lemonade stand. I always in my mind, that's what, how I compare it. It's like, ah, it's going to be one of those lemonade stands. They're going to look at me like, what, you know, what is it? That, I can't say, what are you smoking? Can I do that? I probably can't say that. <laughs> Isaac could say that, but I can't say that. But anyway, just assume Pastor Isaac said that and not me. But I'm afraid they're going to look at me and think, man, what is it you're thinking? Uh, but I remember that night when I shared it, they didn't treat me that way at all. They embraced it. They were excited. They said, this is, this is what we want to hear. And uh, from that point on, we have moved forward with this vision. I, I don't want to spend really any time here other than to say everybody is equipped for something. We all have different gifts. Uh, you stick me in some urban center or some metro, you know, I, I don't think Indianapolis would be a place that I would thrive pastoring at all. But I, I believe God has shaped me in a certain way. When I was 21, we went to Morocco, Indiana in Newton County up in northwest Indiana and just this little small county, very completely rural, 900 people in the town, 11 old ladies in our church. We were there for four years. But God kind of helped me learn how those people are and how you need to minister to people in a little bit more of a rural area. And um, that church grew to 150 in just four years. And then we went to Winchester, Randolph County, um, 5,000 people in Winchester, and again, kind of the same setting. And, and again, God blessed, and we started a church from scratch, and it grew to well over 200. And these are communities that, that churches aren't in line, standing up in line, wanting to plant churches in these counties because there's not a lot of people there, and there's not much money there, and there's a lot of addiction there, and 
a lot of poverty there, but this is where I feel like God has called us to plant churches, and, and I believe that's wide open. These counties, of course, we have named them as Adams and Blackford and Delaware and Henry and Jay and Randolph, Wayne and Wells. These eight counties are where in the next 10 years we believe we will have established a life-giving church. We've already done that in Dunkirk. Today is their one-year anniversary. This building is what is being built. The uh, footers are already poured. The blocks are already laid. Week after next, we're going to be pouring the slab. And by Easter, we hope they will be in this new building. And uh, today's their one-year anniversary. They had, yesterday, they had an outreach in Dunkirk where they had over 200 children or 200 people showed up at that outreach in that little small town. And uh, God is blessing, and we believe great things are happening there. And just uh, about an hour and a half ago, they had their first service in Hartford City. Not at this building yet. It's not quite done, but um, we bought this right on Highway 3 North. We actually got it for two-thirds of what it appraised for. It's now mostly renovated. The outside has been uh, painted, waiting on a new sign. And... um, the inside, the walls are done, the electrical is run, our guys are doing most of that, and so God has helped us in two of those counties already. So we see God helping this vision that we have identified come to pass. Now secondly, identification is important, but we need motivation too. There's got to be a motivation. What's going to keep us? It's easy to do it today, and it's exciting because it's Dunkirk's first anniversary, and it's first day for Hartford City, and it's our 101st anniversary. And so it's easy to have momentum for a little while, but how are we still going to be doing this 10 years from now? Momentum, motivation is important. Elisha knew how important a double portion of God's Spirit would be, and that's what motivated him. That's what kept him from saying, no, you go ahead, I'm too tired. It's what kept him from saying, I'll just sleep here and you go on. It's what kept him from turning down offers from somebody else to go with them because he was motivated by what it would be, the manifestation of God's double portion in his life. And so that motivated him and he continued to pursue. Motivation, having eyes fixed at what can be was even important for Jesus. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Wherefore, we are compassed about with such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that easily entangles us. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author or the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But here's the phrase I want you to see. This is about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You ever sit and wonder, what, what was it that, that, that enabled Jesus to endure the pain of Calvary and his father turning away from him? What, why didn't he just come down from there? What, what motivated him to push on through, to have his skull ripped by a crown of thorns and his back beaten to where he was beyond recognition and nails thrust in his, in his ankles and in his wrists? A sword thrust at his side, hanging there, almost asphyxiating, and then the father turning away from him. What motivated him? What kept him going through that difficult hour? It was the joy set before him. It was you, me, serving him. Millions of people someday in heaven. That's what motivated Jesus. That's what kept Jesus going. How many are glad Jesus kept going? Aren't you glad? It motivated him. We have to have a motivation as well. It, it's, not, it's not just lots of people have vision. But you've got a motivation that keeps you going. What is our motivation? Let me make it real simple for you. When, when asked about church affiliation, 
27%, that's the best county of all of these, Adams County, 27% claim they have no religious affiliation. In Blackford County, where Pastor Josh had a service this morning, seven out of 10 people say they have no religious affiliation. In this county, where we're worshiping this morning, seven out of 10 say no religious affiliation. Henry County, 61%. Jay County, 61%. Randolph County, 67 Wayne, 57 Wells, 58 No religious affiliation. Let me make it even clearer. Look at the unchurched. Let's just look at raw numbers. In these eight counties, 21,000 people in Adam County are not in church this morning. 21,000. 7,000 in Blackford County, just a small county. 7,000. 70,000 in this county where we're worshiping right now. 70,000 didn't go to church anywhere this morning. In Henry County, 29,000. In Jay County, 13,000. In Randolph County, 15,000. In Wayne County, 40,000. And in Wells County, 17,000. Look at this number. All told, 212,000 people within an hour's drive of this church are not in church anywhere this morning. I'm just going to tell you, I don't need any more motivation than that. There are 212,000 people that are not hearing the gospel this morning, and that's why for the next 10 years, we are going to do our best to put a life-giving church that proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is a chain breaker and a pain taker and a way maker. We're going to put a church there that will tell people that there is hope in Jesus. Amen, if you believe that. And so we have that motivation. And then we need to clarify. There needs to be clarification. Very simply, that means we need to decide what our vision is and what our vision is not. Elisha did not have many pursuits. He had one. I want a double portion of your spirit. To realize our vision, we must clarify what it is and what it is not. This is this great, I wish I would have said this, but it's an African proverb. The man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. How about that? Is that not great theology? Isn't that wonderful? The man who tries to walk two roads will split his pants. If we try to do everything, we will be a miserable failure. Our goal, let me just tell you, is not to be the biggest church in Muncie. It is not to have the most awesome facilities or the greatest technology or the best bells and whistles. Our goal is not to have more ministries out of our church. Our vision is to have life-giving churches in the eight counties of East Central Indiana where there are 212,000 people that are not in church this morning. We're clarifying. This is what we're about. That's why sometimes I know people will come and they say, I got this great idea. I think you guys ought to do that. And it's not because we don't think it's a great idea. We just can't do everything. And we want to do really well at what we know God has called us to do. And it is to plant life-giving churches in these eight counties. Let me read you a mission statement of a university that you know about. Here, here's a mission statement. Listen to this mission statement. It's a great one. To be plainly instructed and consider well that the main end of your life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ. How many would like to go to that university? That is an awesome vision statement. This university was founded in 1636. It employed exclusively Christian professors who emphasized Christian formation in all of their students above all else, and they placed a strong emphasis on equipping ministers to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Every diploma, every diploma of this institution read Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae. 
meaning truth for Christ and the church. You've heard of this university, Harvard, Harvard University. 80 years later, some of the founding leaders of Harvard, a group of New England pastors, said that Harvard had drifted too far in their mission, in their, in their philosophy. They were concerned by how secular it had become, and they approached a wealthy philanthropist by the name of Ella, Elihu Yale. And he shared their concerns and decided to finance their concerns in 1718, and they called the new university Yale University. Their motto was not just veritas, which is truth, but lux et veritas, light and truth. Today, Harvard and Yale's legacy of academic excellence are still intact, but neither school resembles what their founders envisioned. At their 350th anniversary celebration of Harvard, Stephen Muller, who was the former president of Johns Hopkins University, bluntly stated the bad news is that this university has become godless. And Larry Summers, who was a former president of Harvard, confessed, things divine have been neither central, have, have been central neither to my professional or my personal life. And their mission drifted. They didn't clarify what they were about, and it drifted to what these institutions are doing today, really hotbed of some of the most godless liberal thinking in our entire nation. D.L. Moody said, I, I suppose they say of me, he's a radical, he's a fanatic, he has only one idea. He said, well, it's a glorious idea. I'd rather have that said of me than be a man of 10,000 ideas and do nothing with it. And to clarify, this is what God has called us to do. Number four, invitation, and I'm almost done. We invite you to enjoy this vision and see it realized in East Central Indiana. But what can I do, Pastor? What benefit can I bring? Maybe God is speaking to you today about one of those eight counties, and maybe when we plant the church in that county, you're going to be a part of that core team. Maybe you're going to be the pastor. Maybe you're going to go and do children's ministry or lead worship there. Maybe God is speaking to you and saying, this is what I want you to do. This is your part in this vision. I'm inviting you to be a part of what God has called us to do, but all of us can pray. Chuck Colson, who's passed now, one of the great thinkers of the last couple of decades, tells a story about his hometown, Naples, Florida, which he calls one of the garden spots of the world. He says it's an absolute nirvana for all the golfers, and they all come there. They're all CEOs of major corporations, and they retire to Naples because this is it. 27 golf courses and miles of sparkling beach and the very best country clubs. Colson said, I watch these guys. They're powerful people. They have that New York look on their face. They're determined. But all of a sudden, they start measuring their lives by how many golf games they can get in. Colson said, I've often said to them, do you really want your, to live your life counting up the number of times you chase that little ball around those greens? And they chuckle, he says, but it's a nervous chuckle because they are concerned. Within six months, they realize how banal their life has become. They live in castles, and when they're bored, they build a bigger castle. I mean, the most beautiful, the most extravagant, but they're miserable. Colson adds this, the object of life is not what we think it is. 
to achieve money, power, or pleasure. That's not the Holy Grail. The object of life is the maturing of the soul. And you reflect the maturing of the soul when you care more for other people than you care for yourself. We want to develop biblically sound believers whose souls are mature and they reflect the character of Christ who sees 212,000 people that don't know him and he's willing that none perish and so he has compassion on them and does whatever he can to make certain that they know him. You're invited. It's an invitation to all. And finally, mobilization. Pastor Clayton, if you want to come, I want you all stand with me if you would. Those who are going to be baptized, you can go ahead and make your way out and get ready for the baptism. Let me just close with this. The rest of you just hold steady and hear me this morning. Mobilization, where do we go from here? We all can pray. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send laborers into the harvest field. In Matthew 9, in Matthew 9, it's a great text. Jesus looks at the multitudes and he is moved with compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd wandering. So he says to his disciples, he says, hey guys, the harvest is plentiful. There's a whole lot of people that need me, but the laborers are few. So pray that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers in the harvest field. Listen, 212,000 people within an hour's drive of this church, that is a plentiful harvest. So pray that we have laborers. You can labor, you can pray for laborers, you can give, you can serve, this is a real practical step in the middle of what is kind of the older time, but it's, I, got, I have your attention, so I want you to hear it. In the month of November, I'm gonna unpack this message with real practical things. Uh, it's not, there's gonna be no lead up to asking you to give. It's not gonna be about giving, but I'm gonna make four presentations. They're all gonna be the same. Two Tuesdays and two Wednesdays. Two of them will be in the morning. Two will be in the evening. I think we have the dates. We can even put them on the screen. Maybe if you've got that screen, it's gonna be a screen or two ahead. But I'm gonna make these four presentations. I'm gonna ask you to come to one of those. Because people ask, how are you planning churches? How, do you, how does that happen? How does the district help? How do you fund it? How do you buy property? All of those things. How do you find a pastor? How do you train people? I'm gonna give you the nuts and bolts to that because I think you need to know because you're part of this vision. There are the dates. The presentations are called with a fixed gaze. The 10th, the 11th, the 17th, and the 18th, there are sign-up sheets in the lobby. Please sign up for one of those. If you, We will social distance, but if you feel like you can't come for whatever reason, we're also going to video it, and um, we will make sure that you get a copy of that. God has given us a vision, and we can realize that vision. Let me just end. Look at this quote. It's a great quote. Um, Charles Paul Kahn. Looking through a peephole is no way to stay motivated when you're moving toward a goal. The big view is important. It takes big dreams, big goals, big rewards, big faith to keep us moving through obstacles and fatigue and discouragement. To maintain momentum requires constantly reminding ourselves what we are working toward. Listen, a peephole is looking through 2020 COVID and saying this is impossible. That's small vision. But I'm asking you, to move with me where we are seated in heavenly places and see with God's vision, not through the people of a tough year, 
but through the eyes of one who never changes, whose kingdom cannot be shaken, whose throne is not moving. I'm asking you to go there with me and see with his eyes and have vision. ECI 8 is what God has called us to. And again, the words of the writer of Proverbs, let your eyes look directly ahead and let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Father, help us to have fixed eyes and a fixed gaze. Not looking through the peephole of difficult days, but instead, Lord, looking with the vision that you have given to us. I pray, God, your blessing on Dunkirk, on Hartford City, and on the other counties that we will one day be privileged to share the gospel in. Not because we have a corner on it, we don't. There are many churches already doing incredible things there. We just want to partner with them. We want to also help reach those 212,000 that need Jesus. I pray, God, that you would help us to clarify, to stay motivated, and to find ourselves engaged in the vision that you've given to us, to reach every generation. Some in this room today have sons and daughters, grandsons and granddaughters, husbands, wives, brothers, sister, mom, dads that are in those counties that are not in church today that don't know Jesus. And so we're praying for them as well. Keep us focused, eyes fixed, fixed gaze on the vision that you've set before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Let's worship the Lord. Today.